Sisters podcast with Nicole and John Ellen. So welcome to another episode of the Radical Awareness podcast. How are you today, Nicole? Oh, I'm pretty good. Yeah. yeah. We are continuing on with the uh, review or introduction or whatever you want to call it of the 10 raw principles. Um, we got through the first three and we are moving to... Uh, three or four more today. Number four. <laughs> yeah, let's start with number four. So number four on the list is your teaching isn't your practice. We've got a little subtitle here. Teaching is a form of practice, but not the place to work on yourself, which kind of leans back into uh, point one, which is do your own work first before teaching. Mm. Mm. And obviously these were initially made for um, yoga teaching, um, and so in that context, it's this idea that when you're teaching, if you're teaching a physical asana or a physical postural practice, that you're not there doing your own practice. You're not there stretching your own body or having an experience like that. Trying to get your own workout. Yes. Um, that you are either the purpose of demonstration is for the students and this idea of what we'd call holding space, but very much what that actually means is being present with what you're doing, what's happening in your experience so that you're present for everybody else in the room who you are guiding, instructing or teaching um, and that you're really present with that and observing. Um, and that goes for any style of, of teaching. And I think without kind of leaning into principle one of this idea of doing our own work first and understanding that we are, also influenced by everybody who's in the room. We're influenced by what's been going on in our day. We're influenced by how our body feels and that without a level of awareness that can then play into our teaching, which means it's becoming more about us and not necessarily about them. And so understanding this principle that your teaching is not your practice, it's very much how can you um, create and share for the people in front of you. And it sounds obvious but actually without further reflection, without actually having this level of awareness, it's really easy to slip into making it about you. And we've definitely seen over the years, we've had certain teachers um, work for us who have kind of started their practice as I've created this practice today because my body feels like this. And so this is what we're doing. And it sort of has this nice intention of I'm in it with you, mm. but at the same time, it's so bizarrely backwards. That's not why you're teaching. It's not about you. And we, it, 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 I think of it as a little bit like spiritual bypassing of we're all connected. We're all one. Therefore, I'll just do what's in my body and that will be great for everybody else. And I'm like, yes. Pretty hit and miss. Yes. There's an element of truth in that. If we're talking about these kind of philosophical ideas or on a more quantum reality that yes, we are all connected and we can all be perceived as one, but in the human experience in this third dimension where we are and where most, most people who are coming to your classes, reality is based that they are coming to a class for their own experience. Then, uh, putting over the top of that, that you're just like me and you're going to do what I want you to do because this is how my body feels probably doesn't really align. It's it's just using a concept to kind of fill your own desire. So that's what this principle is really talking about. How can you be more observant and uh, teach in a way that is for the people in front of you and also acknowledging and honoring the people in front of you as, as different to you. We can always use this concept of similarity that we are similar 
to each other to bring more unity and compassion. And that's a really beautiful tool. But in our teaching, in our life, in this way, it's saying, okay, I want to honor all of the differences and be able to create an experience that honors all the differences while also being present in my own self. And it's a different form of practice. So your more your practice is actually this. It's about remaining in your center while being able to serve those in front of you. And that's what that practice is, which is much more one of self-reflection as opposed to having, say, a physical practice or whatever is, mm. whatever it is that you are teaching. And very much about presence. So sometimes when we plan a class, uh, we can get very stuck into the structure that we've created, the rigidity that we've created, the idea that we created in our mind when potentially we were by ourselves planning. So the idea of this principle is also that you are flexible enough to adapt if a different kind of human walks in the room, if a different kind of situation arises, that you can you can be malleable with the plan. You can be observant, you can be curious, and you can respond to what's happening. Is the thing that you're trying to convey, is it landing? It's always the question that's running through as you remain as present as you can with the signals that you're getting back from the room and kind of folds us straight into the next oh, principle. I haven't finished all that principle, John. Which is, I'll, 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 give, I'll give it to you, <laughs> which, which is their body, their alignment. And so being able to be aware of everybody's differences in the room and so that we we bounce back and forth between these two, almost three principles. I mean, they all cross over. That they you very see. much yeah. do. Yeah. So please continue. Ah, uh, yes. I just wanted to say as well, you know, extending beyond just the yoga realm of because we really believe these principles, yes, exist in a trauma informed way of teaching, say yoga or whatever you are teaching and sharing, but also extending out into your life and your wider relationships. And your teaching isn't your practice is this idea that we are actually all teachers and we're all students all the time. Most of us can understand that concept. And what this means is that in any relationship that we exist in, there are, there are moments where when we're sharing even our opinions or our advice, that we become the teacher in that moment. And that it's honoring that sometimes we give advice that we don't take ourselves and that it's kind of like that, that is in our practice, just because we can give advice and we know it in one part of our brain doesn't mean that we've done that work ourselves. And so often this is where confusion and double standards and kind of abuse comes from because we're not in a self-reflective place to know that we can know something, you know, we can understand it with, let's say, more of the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex of our brain, but it hasn't actually integrated into our belief system or our, our lives as such. And so looking at your relationships and being really mindful that if you are choosing to give somebody advice, can you have enough humility and grace to acknowledge that you don't actually do that yet? And maybe you do. And it's just knowing the difference just because you're saying it, just because you think it, just because you know it with your mind doesn't necessarily mean it's an integrated part of your life. And our life is teaching and our life is practice. It extends way beyond teaching yoga or practicing yoga or any of those things that you might be doing, but really honoring the balance of humility in this state um, and in this principle. So yes, I just wanted to add that it extends far beyond. Mm, and it's very much about embodiment. So taking time to assimilate 
things that you've learned and take time with them, get to know them from more than one perspective. And sometimes we, we learn something new, we get excited and we want to share it straight away. And that's that's fine, that's all well and good, but it's very important, in my opinion, that your opinion. <laughs> that you're that you're referencing where you got it from if it's something that you've just picked up. That you're referencing that you just picked it up. Or oh, I just heard this. I think it's really useful. Or take the time to assimilate it, see what it means to you, and then start to share it in your own unique way. Um, I think we have these levels, particularly with social media, where we just kind of catch and pass. Mm. So we see something and we're like, yes, that's who I am, and we share it straight away. And then if you wound yourself back through maybe your social media shares over the past, would you do something differently? Maybe, maybe not. I would. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and so taking the time to assimilate and really contemplate things is, is a very important piece of the puzzle as well. Mm. Yes. Yeah, a lot of times we call this, especially in yoga teaching, um, lunchbox stickering. Like you've got a uh, a lunchbox and you just put lots of nice shiny stickers on the outside. This is who I am. <laughs> and we see it a lot in the kind of yoga spiritual world of just that if you dress in the right way, if you say the right things, if you sort of know these concepts, but none of them are integrated or practiced uh, to, to a high degree, because it takes time mm. to really understand a lot of these practices. They're like ancient philosophies of and, life and death. Yes. And it, it requires practice and contemplation and meditation and time and actually the, the process of aging of actually becoming older it's not just oh i learned the yamas you know the niyamas which are the um what are they called concepts of no what are they called the ethical guidelines <laughs> thank you see like i need more contemplation um and and learning it once or just reading it you know in, in a one sentence uh statement and then kind of using it all the time in classes or to profess advice and knowledge but it hasn't actually been integrated if you're not living in a way that aligns with something like ahimsa which is non-violence loving kindness and awareness then pushing that onto somebody else might not go so well the integrity isn't aligned it might be violent it might be violent <laughs> and i'm not saying to not give advice or to share ideas when they haven't fully been integrated because oh my gosh i'm doing it all the time but do it when it's you're doing, asked yes when you're asked and <laughs> with awareness, with humility to know that it takes time and that as it is a process to, I think, especially in the yoga world, yoga teachers end up kind of holding this image like they've done it all and they know it all. And it's very disempowering for students to be like, oh, I'm so far away from that. They talk about these big lofty concepts like Santosha, which is contentment. And you're in like this really intense pay propose saying, can you find contentment here but with this air of because I've already done it and it's more like how can we balance it out with the humility to be like this is a constant working progress that we're always working with these ideas that it is a process of integration and just because you've done a teacher training or in anything whether it's school teaching or yoga you so need to be mindful that we are still humans on this journey and we're working, we're walking alongside each other and supporting with these concepts and these ideas that are beautiful, but yeah, not to get confused ourselves between knowing something and embodying something. And so, 
yeah, I think this does all fall under this principle, but it also falls under a lot of the other principles. Mm. Um, but humility is key and, and presence, being able to be aware, to turn up in your, your teaching, whether it's advice with a friend or at the front of a yoga class or the front of a classroom and recognize that this is you guiding and supporting, but from a place of, of humility and grace. Mm. Yes. So as we fold in to principle five, uh, we're talking about here, their body, their alignment is the principle. And then it comes with this wonderful subtitle of everybody's story is different, therefore requires a different path. Mm. And so while this very much comes out of the idea that we have uh, different bodies, uh, different anatomical makeup, different history, different traumas, different amounts of flexibility, mobility, etc., therefore require different attention in our movement practice. It's also that all of those things apply to the way you align yourself in your life, the way you align yourself to certain other practices, whether they be meditation or the practice of reading a book, the practice of going for a walk, the practice of owning pets, the practice of growing plants. So any one of these things requires a different level of awareness, a different level of alignment to get the best out of what you're doing. And so not everyone wants a uh, 90 degree angle at their knee. <laughs> they don't. And you could think of it as your body, your alignment. And you know, how often maybe when you've gone to any kind of, let's say, movement class, yoga class, have you been given full freedom and space to explore the ideas of a shape? So you could think of it like the alignment, um, how it could be presented, but then given the freedom to explore how you find your alignment and what does it mean to find your natural alignment? So alignment is something that actually arises from within. And when we have the guidelines of what we're trying to create or look for, we can then sense our own alignment and come into this real place of awareness and strength and integrity. Again, where we're very embodied in each shape and in each pose to then have the invitation to link the breath with the movement and to start to find that connection. And there is these beautiful ways from a trauma-informed perspective to actually find the alignment in every shape that is 100% yours and not something outside of yourself. You're not trying to look like the picture or even the teacher or anything, but can you have guidelines from a teacher to kind of invite you in to explore where you want to go? And it's, it's interesting because, you know, the way we actually learn is by, well, a part of the way we learn um, you've got, you can listen to instructions, but for a lot of us, we want to visually see somebody do it or a picture. So it's not that visual aids aren't helpful. They're very helpful, but how do we also get to a point once we've kind of gone into it, started to create the shape, use all those mirror neurons, you know, to sort of see and pick up what's around us and then come into more of this internal state, which is what we got is called interoception. So there's proprioception where we know where our body is in space and we're making the shape. And then interoception is actually being able to sense the body from the inside out. So what does my knee feel like here from the inside out? Can I notice, do I have stability? Is there integrity in my body? Am I still able to breathe? What's happened to my heart rate? 
And within a practice, these questions, and it's not overanalyzing, it is this inquisitive curiosity where you are asking and kind of assessing the shapes to then come into this very centered, grounded place where you have connected to your own alignment. And it is such a powerful practice to really and truly come home to yourself and also know yourself. And if you if you teach yoga or you teach any kind of movement, again, or anything, being able to start viewing your classes like this or your students like this, and then working with your language specifically to start to invite more curiosity and allowing students to explore. And then it comes back to you because you also have to let go of what you want other people to look like. In the same time, you have to let go of what you want you to look like. And this process of letting go, this constant kind of, it's also another yama, parigraha, this ability to let go in these moments, which is so hard. We are constantly micromanaging the crap out of ourselves internally to just hold control, to feel safe, to feel present because nothing around us actually does feel safe. And so control that it's just kind of happening from within means that we are trying to control what we look like in a pose that might be coming from an external source, not actually our true internal sense of interoception, which means if we can't necessarily manage this within ourselves, or we're not aware that we're in this process, when we're teaching practices, we also tend to project our, our ideas of what somebody else should be doing, which means we steal from them. We take away their freedom of their own alignment and their expression and their ability to question themselves to start to adapt and change. So we believe it's a really powerful principle to start looking at it for yourself, asking yourself these bigger questions, and then noticing, do students in your class or do people in your life, in whatever way, feel a sense of freedom around you? Do they feel like they have autonomy? Are they able to express and be inquisitive about who they are in your presence. Mm. This principle also very much leans on the analogy of um, the map is not the territory. And so as teachers, we present the map, the, the kind of coordinates, the directions of how to create the learning, whether that be a yoga pose or anything else. But the territory is very much up to the student, the learners, own expression, their own exploration, their own discovery. And so while you can direct them to the area that they're trying to find, you can't find it for them. And no amount of use of a protractor or any kind of ruler is going to get them into that discovery. And so we would say that our style that we present, that we that we teach, has very much become a style based on this, based on functional interoception rather than um, form-based, rather than looking like a particular picture, looking like a particular shape, and really create, trying to create uh, a functional experience so that you can go inward. Mm. Mm -hmm. And we, mm -hmm. we believe that this approach is much more inclusive because it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be a certain type of flexible to do yoga, that you have to be a certain type of um, age or agility mm. 
or anything along those lines. And thank you, John. Um, I think the kind of, not the argument, but the other side of this coin is like, well, you know, if it's yoga, then you need to do the poses like this because this is where the benefit comes from. And I hear that, like I, I get it and I understand. And I also have got light on yoga and I also trained in a very Iyenga style. Um, but I think it's important to remember that we are not yogi masters who mm. grew up in India and had trained since we were 12 years old and could see beyond what the regular human eye can see, like someone like Iyengar and Patabi Joyce and these um, guru type teachers. But also these teachers who created these very predominant styles were complete innovators the poses and especially the use of props and everything, all these, you know, set sequences were not written on leaves and in, the, in these ancient texts, that's not actually what happened. It was human beings observing other human beings that then innovated the practices to serve the human beings that they were seeing. I think unbeknown to anybody at the time, the practices just became so popular so quickly, like it hasn't been that long and it's all over the world, you know, the Western world, super popular. And then we're trying to fit not only all these people into these practices, but also from completely different cultures, which means our bodies are relatively different. Mm -hmm. And a Western woman compared to a young Indian boy have very different anatomical makeup. And that's just how it is. It's not because that's just how it is. <laughs> and so as teachers, even in the West, we've got to remember the context that we're in, depending on who you are teaching, and then responding to the bodies that you're working with. And even the, the psyche, the actual psychology of a culture, also our, our fundamental beliefs here are very different to what you would find in India. Remembering that the base in India of, especially with Hinduism and all of it, is reincarnation. And that's very different to what we find here, say, in New Zealand. I mean, not saying our own beliefs, but collectively the whole thing is quite different. So the whole context of yoga is very different and we have to take that into consideration because it matters. Mm, it really does. Yeah. And it matters in the way that we wish to include and empower people as we mm. fold into the next, into the next principle, inclusion to empowerment, empowerment. That, it's our favourite. Yes. Now, it's our first is, one. It's one of, the, one of the ones we've been saying since we started doing teacher training, since we started teaching teachers. And like, we don't want anyone in the class to feel excluded. We don't want anyone to feel like they can't or feel like they don't want to come back. Mm, which doesn't mean that's going to happen. Mm. Just, but it is the difference is, is that... It's our core belief and mm. it is the culture of the studio. It is our intention for everybody. That doesn't mean that'll be everybody's experience because we all turn up with our own trauma and pain. Absolutely. And the subtitle of this one says, pay attention to your intention because everybody is sacred and worthy. Everybody. Everybody. And so if you are planning any kind of discourse, any kind of learning, any kind of class, then if this sits underneath as your intention, how can I be more inclusive? How can I, how can I reach my arms a little bit wider than I did last time to sweep more and more people up 
to include mm. more and more people to to be aware, to pay attention, to have an extra level of care. How can I do that? How can I adjust this offering to fit to fit more people in? Because thank you. Because it it actually takes quite a level of your own awareness. Again, back to principle one. You've got to do your own work first. Because I know for myself in this, you think you're including, right? And then the more you start to become aware and it's <laughs> of this idea, you realize all the things that you're not including. It's like, well, yes, I include everyone except for, you know, well, if you can't bend your knees like that, that's really difficult for me. So that's not going to be included. And that's just in, in a yoga class. And it does make teaching much harder because you've got to be much more open to everything. What if we included everybody? What if we saw everybody as sacred and worthy? And this, why this is so challenging and why it actually is really under the radar. You'd be like, oh, of course I do that. But the more you look, you start to unpack and realize that most of us were not born into a very inclusive world, unfortunately. And we arrive here and we're very, very social beings and we're adaptable and we're trying to feel included the whole time. But the culture, and I'm not talking about other humans, because I think humans in their very nature are very inclusive and very loving, but our current structures and systems are not inclusive by any means. And the example I'm going to use now <laughs> is the education system. Mm. So from the moment you enter school, which, you know, if you've gone even through kindergarten, but more so from when you're five, the, the, the foundation, so the actual belief structure within these systems is comparison and competition and and exclusivity basically so you are ranked from the day you go into school you are compared to other children from the moment you are five years old and some are seen as better and some are seen as worse so you most of us have all if we looked at our schooling systems been excluded in some way even if you were the top high achievers or you were the kind of low achiever or you were in the middle you were excluded from groups because of this system, because even with good teachers, even with good initiatives, the foundational belief system in mo most things that we see in our modern societies is based on comparison and competition. Even like, like this, this tinge of, of aggression and violence to become successful, you know, you kind of got to push people out of the way, but that there's even only a certain amount of marks that are allocated. So you have to compete for them as if competition is what they saw healthy competition is it makes yeah, yeah. us motivated. But what we are really designed as our human nature is much more about inclusivity, collaboration, collaboration and coming together and, and creating, creating for the sake of creating, not creating all the time for the sake of productivity. Productivity is a byproduct of creativity, but the way it, we're trained is that productivity comes first and this is a massive issue. And we see the rise in mental health and depression and suicide and just, just outright compliance and confusion, right? Because there was never space to fully express. And so when those are the, the beliefs, the, the, the kind of founding beliefs, it's very hard to get out of that. And then we go into our own worlds and we are just used to excluding certain people. And it's, I think it's this real um, inbuilt survival mechanism that we've kind of learned from a very young age that if we can figure out how to judge and exclude someone else, then hopefully the group won't exclude us, mm. right? So it's not coming from even being horrible. It's just, it's survival because as children, we were so confused 
with our little minds just soaking up everything and being like, okay, judgment's quite a big thing here on earth. So I don't want to be on the other end of that stick. So I better be doing the judging. I better hold that power. And depending on the environments that you grew up in, you can see how this can get quite out of control. And even what we would call narcissistic um, qualities, I believe comes from this, this imbalance of, of blame culture, of competition, of actually standing on other human beings to get ahead is seen as acceptable behavior. And so it just feels like it rips my heart into about a million pieces. And I feel very passionate that if we can all start to do our own work, if we can all see these beliefs that we may have grown up with, and we can come back to this idea that I belong here, I'm worthy, I'm sacred, and so is everybody else, then we start to actually radiate radiate, sorry, out the sense of inclusion, which is empowering. And when an individual is empowered, they begin to create from their authentic, auth, authentic place of creation mm-hmm. and actually are feeding into the world in this incredibly positive, loving way. So there is a possibility, you know, there is the potential is sitting there, this latent potential that everything could be win-win. There's no, 100%. there's no reason for you to win. I have to lose. Which and is vice system. versa. There's, there's no reason it has to be like that. There's so much more availability than a win-lose model. There's so much more availability than a ranking system. If we looked at things in just a slightly different way, there's so many people who are trying to bring these ideas in to try and make life a little bit more joyful. If we looked at it from that fundamental beginning, that that starting point, the schooling system, the, the, the sports system from the outset, there is so much potential for the win-win model to actually become the only model. Mm. And I think it's exactly what you have to ask when you're thinking about this is who benefits from the ranking model? Who benefits from competition? Who benefits from the win-lose model? Mm. And we're not going to go there, but it's not, it doesn't take that long in your imagination to start really considering who benefits Because when you see that, you will get to a point where somebody, some groups, gain a lot of power, control, and usually money. Mm. And that is not something we wish to see and not a world we really want to live in. And if if you look to nature and even civilizations that are a little bit more connected to nature, um, nature isn't about productivity. And we have a confused perception about that. Nature runs sub-optimal. We are obsessed with running optimal. We're obsessed with running to the peak performance, mm. to the to the very top. But that just all that does is create burnout. Year after year, athlete mm. after athlete, um, corporate prowess after corporate prowess. People burn out everywhere because they're trying to run at this optimal level. Because we're not looking after humanness. Mm, but nature runs suboptimal all of the time. You look around, uh, a fruit tree produces all of that fruit to nourish the seeds for the potential that maybe this season, one of those seeds might turn into a sapling, which might again turn into a tree, which then again will produce an abundant level of fruit 
for the potential of just one seed to continue. And so we are obsessed. If we ran a tree in the same way that we run our systems, we would be trying to get every single seed to turn into a tree. <laughs> that is outrageous. And that is not how nature works. And we, believe it or not, are a part of nature. We are a piece of the puzzle of nature. And if we recognized ourselves at that, we could give ourselves a break mm. and actually run at a level which was much more enjoyable. That space that we gave ourselves would be the space for creativity and then everything would fall into place. 100%. And I, to say, dear, someone say, you know, humans are a blight on the earth. And I just so, so heavily disagree with that. Mm. We're just running backwards. And it's not even that humans are running backwards because there are so many beautiful humans that just want to do beautiful things and want to be connected to their hearts and want and know and yearn for the connection to nature. But it has been taken away because of money, power and control. And we in our little corner of the world are like, let's think bigger, you know, and let's actually beyond talking, but just trying to do it all in our own little ways. And that's, that's really all we kind of can do. And it's a beautiful thing because it starts with the individual and it starts coming back to who you are and, the first person you've got to include is you. Mm. you know, how much of ourselves do we exclude because we don't like it or it doesn't fit into that conformity or that box. And so to be able to, to live in a world of actually including others and, and empowering others, we have to include ourselves, our full selves, to empower and uplift ourselves to then be able to do this work in the world. So go mm. forth, my friends. Yes, include <laughs> the heart. You know, mm. There's so much attention put onto this wonderful thing that we have that is that sets us apart from the animals this prefrontal cortex this however else you want to put it but it is our responsibility to to come into union to come into connection between a heart a mind and a body and so that we can start to really become much more inclusive mm -hmm. actually inclusive actually real-time inclusive yeah and how empowering would that be John, I think it would be very empowering. Mm. And I enjoy the journey for yeah. myself and know that it will absolutely change your life. And also the more you introduce these ideas into your life and the people around you, you see some pretty amazing things happen. And even with all the chaos in the world, fuck, life can be pretty damn beautiful. Mm. So thank you for listening. We appreciate it. Yes. And we love you. Mm. You've got that extra... 30 seconds right now seek out that subscribe button and uh, all of this because subscribers we get motivate us to continue thank you for listening to the end once again and we will continue with the 10 principles in the next episode bye goodbye the radical awareness podcast